0: Hello my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we're going to be talking about Brexit, we're going to be talking about Catalonia and we're going to be talking a little bit about us because universities and the people who teach in them have become a small part of the Brexit story in the last couple of weeks. A Tory whip complained that universities like ours were foisting anti-Brexit propaganda on our students. Are we doing that? Are we bullying each other into silence? We'll find out. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast, John Lanchester, Mary Beard, and we hope to have some more soon talking about the state of democracy and the state of the world. As well as politics, the LRB has book reviews, essays about art, poetry and exhibitions. Whether you want to get a deeper understanding of world events or just get away from it all and read about Picasso and octopuses, the LRB will have something fascinating for you. I'm delighted that I'm joined by our regular panel, a full set, Helen Thompson, who is an expert on political economy.
1: Well, having sort of got over the debacle of West Ham's last 10 seconds on Saturday, I went back to watching football and watched Roma beat Chelsea 3-0 and have to say Roma are a very good team this year.
0: Chris Bickerton, who hasn't been with us for a while who knows a lot about European politics. I did
2: lots of things, but I can't... The most fun thing in the last seven days, that completely stumped me as a, as a question.
3: <laughs> I'm still thinking about it.
0: <laughs> and Chris Brooke, who knows a lot about political theory.
3: Uh, I, I did nothing uh, last mm-hmm. night, but on Sunday <laughs> evening, I went to the cinema to see the death of Stalin, and I thought it was hilarious. Interesting. I mean... <laughs> I noticed just around the time...
0: This the is the panel that we hope will regularly convene over the next few months and pick up the themes as we discuss them. And Chris... When I say we've been part of the story, really, it's mainly you, in that you, as a prominent pro-Brexit academic, have been quoted in the newspapers and indeed have written an article about what it's like to be an outlier in a very anti-Brexit university. I'll just quote one line from the piece that you wrote in the Sunday Times, and we'll just leave this hanging and we'll come back to it maybe at the end. You said, in my academic field of European studies, being critical of the EU is rather like being a climate change scientist who admits that he has an SUV in his garage. So we'll talk about what that's like a bit later. But you were away when we talked about Catalonia. And I thought we should probably start before we get on to the meat of how the Brexit negotiations are going, just with how that story has moved on since we discussed it a couple of weeks ago. So Mr Puigdemont has not run away, but... Found himself in Brussels. He's not sought asylum, but he's certainly not where the Spanish government would like him to be. And I think the consensus this week is that Madrid is winning. There are going to be elections, almost certainly, that will be the decisive issue here. But it does also feed into the whole question of Brussels' view of the state of European politics at the moment, and that connects to Brexit. You are very big on the idea that we did discuss that this is about member states. I mean, understanding the European Union is about understanding what it is to be a member state. The member state, Spain, looks like it has the upper hand.
2: I think it certainly has the upper hand in terms of what the European Union has decided to do. The European Council, which is made up of the heads of state, has simply said this is a Spanish affair and there's almost nothing the EU can officially do to get involved. And so Spain has the support of the European Union in dealing with this as a domestic problem. Whether or not Spain has the upper hand internally, I mean, Rajoy did something which I think we can probably all agree was quite quite astute, which was to call early elections. That forced the separatists to decide whether they would run candidates or not. And obviously elections are part of you know, a state's politics, and so either you buy into the politics by running in the elections or you don't people have generally said that that puts the separatists in a bit of a bind. Yes and no. It also shows that this whole story is bound up with the ongoing saga in Spanish politics, which is the collapse of the two-party system. And that's been the incubator for the Catalan crisis from the beginning. So it's not so obvious that this is a win-win for Rajoy. But from the EU-Spain perspective, the EU is about its member states as states, and Spain still is a member state.
0: So why did he run away to Brussels then? I mean, that's one of the oddities of this story, you'd think that he would look for a sympathetic haven. There's almost nowhere less sympathetic than Brussels for what he wants to do. Well, no,
2: I think traditionally, if you go back to sort of I don't know, Independence leaders of the past, they might have gone to another country that was supportive of their cause. I don't know where he could have gone. So in in a sense, he goes to a neutral, where he went to a place where he wants a political voice, but he's gone to a sort of a post-national space, which is Brussels. I don't think it's going to do
0: much good. Helen, you were here when we talked about it before. How do you feel the last three weeks has moved this story on?
1: I mean I think that what we can see is is that Rajoy is using somewhat more astute tactics than he was in the run up to the the referendum that was held in Catalonia. I think the other thing that is interesting though is, is if you look at the polling and some I was looking at yesterday and support for independence in Catalonia has increased by about 7 or 8% from June to October. So still
0: less than 50%. It's, still, it's about
1: it was 49% in the poll that it's I just that, that I saw yesterday. Now, obviously, these are margin of error polls. It could be, you know, like 47, it could be 51, 52. But I don't think that we should start from the assumption that these elections are a win-win for Rajoy because there is a has to be a, a real possibility that actually a secessionist majority will be elected to the Catalonian parliament and then we're back where we were. And I think the other th- interesting thing that's happened, if you look at the decision-making of the, the Catalonian government, clearly... Puigdemont did not want to go to Parliament and make that Declaration of Independence. He wanted some kind of compromise whereby he would get guarantees from the government in Madrid about holding regional elections on essentially on Catalan terms rather than on Spanish terms, i.e. not after Article 155 had been invoked. And it appears that he tried to use the Basque government, which obviously also has got issues about the unity of Spain, to act as a broker between him and Rajoy and nothing happened. That was a failure. And it's at that point that he went went to the Catalan Parliament and asked for that that vote. So on the one hand he's been forced to do something that he didn't want to do, but I think that the Basque government's role in this and how it might react to what's going on is going to be a significant part of how this story develops too.
0: And I guess so I've talked about three weeks. Three weeks is a long time in politics. Three weeks is nothing in this in this unfolding drama. And if we bring this back to Brexit, which is really what we're here to talk about today, when we discussed it three weeks ago, there was a sense that this was a real complicating factor for Europe as a whole in trying to deal with the Brexit negotiations because this was another major problem in a different part of the continent that is likely to impact a whole range of issues, not just Basque separatism, but UK separatism and other knock-on effects too. And yet, as I said at the beginning, at this moment... It looks like the European position is holding. There are other bits of news this week. Again, these are very short-term news cycles. These are short-term economic cycles, but European growth is up. It's positive. Europe is doing better at the moment than the UK. There were good news stories for France, for places as diverse as um, Austria. Um, Spain, Spanish growth is good. Chris, is it your sense that the Europeans are feeling as they approach the Brexit negotiations, given the range of problems that we're always talking about they have, you know, how are they going to deal with Brexit when they've got so many different things chipping away at the European idea, that at the moment they're feeling quite good?
2: I think um, there's certainly more optimism than there was a year ago. There's no doubt. But there's a strange schizophrenia here. I mean, at, not that long ago we were talking about the end of Europe. And if you look at the things that were sort of coming out on you know, the Amazon sort of list of bestsellers you had after Europe, the end of Europe, you know, this was the end. Now you have the rebirth of Europe. Europe has been saved. It's now it's growing again.
0: It's been saved by three months of growth in France.
2: That's right. And so we have to put these things in perspective. And the growth thing is interesting. I think the eurozone is growing again. I think that's good. But it would need, I think, well over a decade of significantly above trend growth to begin to catch up on what has been a long period of very, very sluggish growth and basically economic stagnation. So it's very easy to overplay some of those figures. I think, to be honest, if you push people, the optimism doesn't go that far. There's a unity around Brexit. The U27 have held the line. That's partly because there were agreements made at a European Council summit where guidelines were published that heads of state signed off on about how Brexit would be managed from the EU side, you can't change that without having another meeting of heads of state where they have another discussion and they produce new guidelines. So that's set in stone from the EU perspective. That's where the unity comes from. It's procedural. Also, the elections are up and down. I mean, the Austrian elections were a very mixed result.
0: The Czech um, elections. The Czech elections
2: it? have a, a kind of Berlusconi type figure who's, you know, well, very interesting. Politely, I
0: mean, most people have called him the Czech Trump, right?
2: I think that I goes... Well, but then, but then
0: Trump is that. maybe the American Berlusconi, so...
2: Okay, so interesting things are happening that are a mixed bag. The next big elections are Italy. Nobody, I think, is really willing to stick their head out and say that that's going to be a conclusive victory for the EU project. It's much more complicated than that.
0: So in what you said there, one of the ironies of this is the weakness of the European position was thought to be there are 27 of them and it's not they're not going to be able to hold the line. And yet you're saying, in a way, given that because there are 27 of them, it's very hard for them to change the line... This is complicated game theory negotiation stuff. But there is an implication there that they have something that actually binds them more possibly than the British government has, because the British government, it's not clear what does hold the British position together, whereas the Europeans at least have got the fact that changing the position that they adopted is really hard.
3: The reporting that came out of the European summit claimed that at the meeting of the, the various representatives of the governments following... Mrs May's appearance they took 30 seconds to reaffirm the negotiating position as being unchanged and making it public that it took about 30 seconds was to send a message to the British government that its desire to change the dynamics of the negotiations weren't going to work and then the bulk of the discussion they had according to the reporting was about whether the European leaders should try to help the Conservative Party out of the hole it's dug for itself or whether they should let it hang. And they seem at the moment to be in the mood to let the Conservative Party sort out its own problems, that European concessions now won't make much difference in the grand scheme of things. And that's quite striking if the conversation at the highest levels among the Europeans are about internal Conservative Party politics, not about whether they should shift their basic negotiating position with respect to the British government.
1: I think though that the problem with this argument is, is that it conflates two different issues. One is, is the EU's present negotiating position in relation to this stage one of these talks that is taking place at the moment and it is clear that there is EU unity on this issue and it's entirely unsurprising because the basic EU position is is to get as much money out of the British government for as long as possible. That is the thing that is holding these negotiations. That's why they are in impasse at the moment because the EU wants more money from the British government than at the moment the British government is willing to give it, also wants clarity about how the figure that the British government offers is composed. Now that negotiating position will stay unified because clearly they have a collective interest for that to be so. The states who are the net contributors do not want to increase their contributions and the ones who are the net beneficiaries don't want to lose out from expenditure from EU programmes. But if it is possible to get past that position such that the next phase of negotiations about transition agreement and a future trade agreement then you have very diverse set of interests at stake and then I don't think the EU is going to be unified because the different trading positions of the EU member states are different in relation to Britain. They also have different positions in relation to their borrowing needs. And London is the financial centre of the Eurozone. Two thirds of Eurozone borrowing takes place in London. That matters in different ways for different member states in relation to their f- present fiscal position. So the, the question really is, is, is there anything that can move the negotiations from this present position where they are in an impasse about money? So in a
0: way, the implication of that is that And we've heard more about this recently. It's in the interests of the Europeans not to move beyond this point, not just because they are holding the line, but because the next phase is the one where it all starts to unravel for them. I mean, they've got, in a way, a double incentive to keep it where it is now.
1: Except for the fact that that presumes that they can do without an agreement in the end on the budgetary issue. And I think that that is an unknown question. If you looked at it in terms of straightforward fiscal interest, you would not say that the EU wants to deal with the fiscal problem of Britain ending up making no further payments to the European Union. At the same time, is there sufficient common ground between the EU member states where they actually could say, OK, this is enough and we could tolerate that and then we will move on? I think that is going to depend on how much the British government ultimately is willing to offer and how the differences over the trade and finance set of issues play themselves out if the second stage of the negotiations do come about?
2: Um, I mean I have a slightly different reading of what's happening I think and what's holding things up it is true that the second stage for the European Union is a bit more complicated than the first but I don't think that's what's really going on The, the obstacles lie on the British side almost entirely the financial settlement in principle is the easiest one to resolve the UK government has now accepted that it has to pay something From the European Union's perspective, it has to pay. There's not a clash of principle here. It's about the details, how much. Now, in terms of the figures themselves, this is not big money. Budget contributions to the European Union are not big money compared to some of the sums that have been thrown around during the Eurozone crisis. So the sticking point is not that. The reason why it's been withheld is that the UK government, after having triggered Article 50, had virtually no negotiating power whatsoever. There's nothing more that it could withhold apart from paying this money and having an agreement on the financial settlement. That's the only card it thinks it has. So it's holding back on it as a way to try and push the European Union to change this thing about only negotiating a future deal once it's done a deal on the money. But it's the UK side that's holding back as its kind of trump card, and it's not a trump card. In the second phase, there will be a bit more negotiating, I think, on the EU side about what's the offer that the UK is going to get But basically, I think there is no doubt whatsoever that it's going to be a free trade arrangement, a sort of a Canada-style free trade agreement with some things added on because the UK is not Canada, so it will always be tailored a little bit to the UK. But that's basically it. Unless the UK is willing to accept significant things like European Court of Justice jurisdiction over lots of things, which it won't, unless it's willing to accept full free movement, which it won't, all it gets is a free trade agreement. Now, the EU27, I think it won't take them very long to agree that. So you'll get these basic outlines, which may not say exactly what the deal is because it's quite sensitive, but basically the outlines will say this is what you're going to get, take it or leave it,
1: and that's it. Do you really think there's going to be an actual long-term free trade agreement as part of these Article 50 negotiations, as opposed to a transition agreement, an agreement to negotiate about that afterwards? Well, So that's
2: something else. I think it's absolutely impossible to negotiate A free trade agreement of the kind that, it's kind of a Canada Plus, if you like, within the timeline set by Article 50. It's simply impossible. Even if you add another two years of either the extension of Article 50 or a transitional arrangement that comes to the same thing, to be honest where the status quo is exactly the same, and so the deadline is then pushed a bit further for the next sort of deal, even that is incredibly difficult. So the timeline is working against the UK, there's no doubt.
0: So was the basic mistake to trigger Article 50?
2: It was a trap, and Mrs May walked straight into it. A deliberate
0: trap? I mean, so I've I've seen you, there was a debate that you had with one of the advisors to Barnier, which you were debating this very point, point that you think that Article 50 was never designed to be a sort of practical device for exit. It was, in a way, a barrier to exit.
2: There's no doubt about that. Mm. So Um,
0: by invoking it, and it's partly British domestic politics, in a sense she was, she had to do it to call the bluff of her opponents within the Conservative Party, but it left Britain in a very, very difficult position.
2: Well, so the way Article 50 was designed, it it was quite complicated, but on the one hand, it was definitely a deterrent. It was definitely designed as a very impractical way to leave the, the the European Union, there's no doubt. On the other hand, there was some pressure from the British side that this had to be something with a deadline to it. It couldn't be an open-ended exit. There had to be some sort of way in which it was clear that a country would leave once it had decided to leave. So that was intended to be, I suppose, helpful to the exit process. But overall, I think... It was designed as something that nobody thought would be implemented, and was not a practical way to leave the European Union.
0: But it's an odd sort of deterrent because the only circumstances in which a state would leave the European Union is if there was a genuine popular desire, probably expressed through a referendum, to do that. And the technicalities of Article 50 were never going to play into that. I mean, who's it meant to deter here? I suppose it's to deter anyone from even calling a referendum. Is that the thought? I mean, who, who's it meant? To I deter? don't think
1: it's a deterrent. Though it might have been seen that way by those who designed it. I think it just was something that was a product of very little thought. There was actually much more serious debate about the secession from the European Union issue in the debate that led up to the constitutional treaty, the treaty that was then rejected in the French and Dutch referendums. But that debate did not take place in regard to the Lisbon Treaty, which is where Article 50 comes from. I think that the... It would have been pretty difficult for the British government to think about any other way of leaving the European Union without via Article 50 because it would have looked like Britain was being essentially disrespectful to treaties that it had signed up to. I think that the problem that Mrs May's government got into is, is that it's now abundantly clear that it triggered Article 50 without having done any contingency planning for what happened if the negotiations broke down. And now we can publicly see them trying to do something about that, but that does not lead to a strong negotiating position at all because it shows that actually that there was a presumption from the start that the talks could be successful and it is strange for the British government to have made that same mistake when it's exactly the same mistake that Cameron made in the renegotiations prior to the referendum.
0: And I suppose you could say that the effective deterrent is not to deter Britain, but Britain's experience now will deter anyone else. So in that sense, it is going to work as a deterrent.
2: It will, I think. Uh, But also the structure of Article 50 is, for instance, you are basically excluded from the European Union as you are exiting the European Union. You can't have a say over your new relationship to the EU until you've Left. These are things which are not intended to be very workable because there are loads of questions that really need to be put together. But I think Alan's right. It was also never really thought of as a serious issue because it wasn't thought something likely to happen.
0: Well, so, that's always a mistake, right? That's right. In politics, that's never a good principle to introduce something on the assumption that it'll never come into practice. Listening to this conversation, I'm struck that
3: the two ends of it are on the one hand money and on the other hand the future trade relationship and we haven't talked about the irish border and it seems to me that on the on the issues of money and citizen rights in the end the eu will pretty much get what it wants because it can hold the line and that's the the hurdle that has to be crossed before it will talk about trade and it's possible to see some kind of resolution of those issues in the not too distant future But the EU always led off by saying that the third issue they had to make progress on was was the Irish border. And I don't see any kind of progress at all. The most recent statement I think I saw from the British government just said, oh, well, we're talking to the Europeans about some imaginative ideas or something. I mean, how you sort out the Irish border gives you a great deal of information about what else might be coming down the pipeline in terms of the arrangement between the United Kingdom and the European Union. So I'm struck that that's rather fallen out of the conversation. Is that because you think that in the end... Ireland both north and south will have to lump whatever
1: I don't think Um, it's that so much I think it's this is where the problem of the EU's staggering these talks comes into play because you actually can't talk about the Irish border until you've sorted out what trade and customs relationship Britain is going to have with the European Union thereafter because at that point the Irish border becomes Britain's border on the island of Ireland with the European Union unless you know what that is in economic terms I can't actually see how you can sort out what the Irish border question is.
2: But I mean, There is a fundamental issue here, which is a problem, which is, if you go back to the Good Friday Agreement, the possibility for the Good Friday Agreement to be a success was partly due to the fact that the signatories of it were EU member states. It allowed a fudging of very difficult questions. There was a kind of fluidity, if you like, that was introduced by the fact that the Republic of Ireland and the UK were actually, at the time, uh, EU member states. Could the Good Friday Agreement have been signed had the UK not been a member state of the European Union? I don't think that's a, there's a very easy answer to that, and it may be that not as it was signed, no. But the problem there is not so much with EU membership, it's with the Good Friday Agreement. And there needs to be, I think, not a negotiation with the EU here, there needs to be a a discussion between the Republic of Ireland and the UK, those two governments coming together and trying to recast that agreement on terms that are not reliant on the EU membership of both sides. That, I think, is the critical thing. So in some ways, yes, it's partly dependent on what the future relationship is that the UK has to the EU. But the fundamental question, I think, is that that agreement was too reliant on... EU membership of both sides, and it needs to be recast on a different basis. And that's not an easy thing to do.
3: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass?" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com
1: slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. The other thing we've managed to avoid talking about, which usually comes up earlier in these conversations, is the weakness of the May government at present its week for all sorts of reasons this week it's now been ensnared as everyone is in British politics at the moment by this paranoia about ag- allegations of sexual harassment that's going to add to its weakness and I think to the general air of instability around British politics. Article 50 was invoked a general election was called So there were two mistakes made, not just one. And we don't know where we would be without the second mistake. But given the second mistake was made from Theresa May's point of view, to what extent the Europeans have an incentive to to keep this government in place to ensure that these negotiations can be concluded. But to what extent is the relative weakness of the British government an increasing factor in these negotiations in the hardline position that's being taken?
2: I think it's a decisive factor. I mean, I don't know whether it's possible for some of the difficult things that the UK government will have to swallow in order to move the negotiations to the next stage and to conclude them. I don't know whether some of these things can go through the cabinet without splitting the cabinet, and without ultimately bringing down the government. Obviously, the financial settlement is one where there is massive disagreement across different members of the cabinet about what they're willing to accept and what the red lines are. If it's a big figure relatively speaking, a big figure that the UK has to accept in order to move to the next stage, I could see something like that beginning to trigger some sort of unravelling. So I don't think there is enough coherence within the government to actually conclude the negotiations. But is that
0: not then one of the things that the negotiators on the other side have to take account of, which is they presumably do not want their negotiating partners in trying to secure agreement internally to fall apart. They must be as worried as a whole range of different political actors are with the uncertainty that comes with a Corbyn government?
2: The phrase that really struck me, that was used a number of times by Michel Barnier's negotiator uh, last week in, in London, and which Barnier himself has used, is Brexit, from the perspective of the European Commission, is a process to be managed. That's it. Now, I think we have to go back to other instances where the European Union has negotiated agreements that have had massive geopolitical ramifications, but which the European Union has not taken on board. Ukraine is an obvious example. The European Union functions in a way where it deals with processes, and it's not very good at considering wider implications, and in many instances is actually dominated by the process itself. So I don't think, to be perfectly frank, there is much consideration given to the political consequences of the evolution of the Brexit negotiations.
1: I think the crucial question here goes actually back to the the German government. And I think it's been the the question that's run through this whole story from the point when Cameron decided that renegotiations were going to take place and then a referendum would be held after those negotiations had been completed. And the the really crucial question that I don't know what the answer to is, is, is did Angela Merkel want to keep Britain in the European Union or not? I think there was a case to say that she didn't, or at least that she wasn't prepared to expend very much political capital to ensure that was the case and Cameron basically destroyed his government over not understanding that that was a possible outcome to the negotiations upon which he embarked. I think now the question is is does Angela Merkel want there to be a fairly comprehensive agreement economic but also ongoing security partnership between Britain and the European Union. I think the answer to that question is that she quite probably does. But the question becomes how much political capital can she spend both in domestic politics and in internal European Union politics to secure that end? And how are circumstances going to change between now and the time when that decision comes to a crunch in ways which will affect the judgment that she makes about that? And so in one sense, I think that it's quite difficult to understand the dynamics of the negotiations at the moment in terms of the big picture because we're in a process dominated stage of them that is basically being run by the commission but if and when we get past stage one and on to negotiating the future then the commission is going to matter much less and the German government is going to matter much more
0: and one last question before we talk about us because we haven't talked about us yet what do you think is the next break point in this process so there are all of these contingencies ranging from elections in places like Italy through to the relative instability of the British government and so on. But in the process itself, what is the point beyond which it's no longer possible to keep fudging this issue? How long do we have to wait until something gives?
2: Uh, December of this year. I think if the European Council does not agree to move to negotiations on a new deal, a new relationship with the UK, bound by a framework agreed upon by the European Council, in essence, the message is to the UK that the negotiations are over. So I think there will be some sort of dramatic event in November, early December, something where the UK cabinet will have to make some pretty tough decisions. And if that can pass through the cabinet, then it may be possible to start stage two negotiations. If it can't, then you might start to have the beginning of this political unravelling on the UK side. So
0: December is going to be a big month in... British and European politics. Yeah. I said at the beginning, the other thing that we would talk about is the role of universities in this in a British context, because it has become a pretty political issue in the past couple of weeks. Chris Heaton-Harris, a a Tory whip, sent a letter which was in the more hysterical coverage of this, accused of being McCarthy Act, wanting to know what universities were teaching about Brexit. And it was part of a, a wider suggestion coming out of different bits of the Conservative Party that there's a kind of almost universities conspiracy here. Universities on the whole, and indeed university towns and university constituencies, are very anti-Brexit. And there's a feeling that it's very hard to resist that from inside a university. And one or two students have expressed some misgivings about it. But Chris, we got two Chrises here, Chris Bickerton. Chris, You've been quoting the paper. And as I said, at the beginning, you wrote an article, very interesting article in the Sunday Times about what it's like to be a pro Brexit academic in a I mean, Cambridge is not a huge outlier here. But Cambridge is is about as anti Brexit as you can get because not just the university, but the town is very anti Brexit. So you said, among many other things that before the vote, people were pretty tolerant and indeed slightly patronising, I think, by implication of your point of view, because we all believe in Free speech and free expression, but after the vote, there was quite a lot of hostility. But not you wanted to suggest any kind of attempt to stifle you. But how, just from your personal view, how bad did it get after the vote?
2: It was more in the change of tone. I didn't get some sort of hard time particularly. Nobody acted as a, as a bully or anything like that.
0: And no one asked you about what you were teaching.
2: At no point, no. What I noticed was, and I think this was the case, most people didn't expect the result. And so in advance of the vote, having a conversation where somebody was expressing a different point of view was interesting. But it did feel not at the time. At the time, I thought, well, it's good. People are maybe more open. And often I would hesitate to say what my view was. And then I would say, OK, well, I'll say it. And then found that the response was more sympathetic than I expected. That wasn't universally the case, but that, I was often surprised by that. So that was my experience before the vote. Afterwards, there was a definite hardening of, of opinion, where people, a number of people, said this very literally. They said, "Whatever the, your views were for voting Brexit, you've now ushered in a sort of a Nigel Farage Britain. You know, you've now brought in all this xenophobia and all the racism which we think is going to come with Brexit. Even if you had different views about Brexit, that's what you've you know introduced. You personally. You personally. And there were some instances where some people were particularly concerned about certain aspects of the the Brexit fallout. So Ireland is one. People who are Irish citizens, I think, took that very personally and said, you have to be responsible for consequences and were very outspoken and angry. Yes, that was the change was before there'd been this kind of more sort of, oh, yes, we'll listen and we were happy to, to hear your view. And I think it did, you know, in retrospect, probably was something along the lines of this is how you deal with a child, where you just let them sort of be capricious, but you don't really take it seriously because there are no real consequences. And then it
0: turns out the child gets to decide.
2: Well, and then suddenly you're really unhappy about that, yeah.
0: But did you feel cowed at any point?
2: No, but I think um, I'm not particularly representative. Um, you're not an
0: easily cowed person, I'm sensing.
2: But also, especially if you are... You know, if, I'd, if I hadn't have studied the European Union as much as I had and hadn't been as confident of the positions I took, if I hadn't have been professionally in a position where I didn't feel threatened or in a precarious place, if I had been much younger, I think there are a number of factors that might have meant that I felt a little bit more uh, hesitant about making my views known. But generally, I have to say, this was entirely just a matter of peer pressure and social pressure, which is not unique to Brexit. It's many other parts of life, many other issues, there is the same sort of peer pressure and social pressure. This wasn't something emanating from institutions or from, certainly not from the university, but it was peer pressure and social pressure.
0: In the piece, you draw the comparison with the tuition fees issue. And it seems there's to me, there's an obvious difference here, which is that on the tuition fees issue, if we assume that in universities like this one, the majority, in some cases, the vast majority of academics are broadly, this isn't a left-right thing, but on the kind of liberal in the American sense, or on the Brexit issue, more cosmopolitan wing. Um, This town voted overwhelmingly for the Labour Party in the last election, and it certainly moved strongly in that direction. But on the tuition fees issue, there's a clear tension between the self-interest of academics and some of their political convictions, in that high tuition fees pay their salaries, and on the other hand, a lot of academics feel that they are, in some sense, unjust. But on the European issue, self-interest and political conviction converge, on the question of the EU in that membership of the European Union in various different ways is good for academics and elite universities and across a whole range of things, including financially. And at the same time, membership of the European Union conforms with a lot of academics, personal political convictions. So that coming together does create a different kind of potential for a kind of groupthink atmosphere. And certainly I have a sense of it. I mean, my my feeling about it inside a university is that the thing that's sometimes been hard to deal with is the ways in which what are often self-interested positions on Brexit are dressed up as points of principle, which you can't do with tuition fees because academics are forced to face a very tough dilemma. But in this case, once or twice too often, one has the feeling that people are presenting the evidence as obvious, whereas in fact a little bit more self-reflection about the ways in which they are personally involved in the outcome would be helpful. I mean, I think that's as far as it goes in the groupthink thing, that it's just, and it relates to the education gap question we've talked about before, which is you know, sometimes the tribal aspects of politics in university settings get dressed up as superior wisdom.
1: I think the, there is another dimension to this as well, and that is is the effective claim to authority that many academics, not certainly not all academics, are prone to make. Now, Chris works on the European Union. He's published quite a lot of things about the European Union, but lots of academics work in subjects that are absolutely nothing in terms of knowledge to do with the European Union, but are quite comfortable, shall we say, in making arguments about their own position about Brexit, Well, they will make a claim to authority on the basis of being an academic and having the knowledge and having the analytical skills that come with being an academic without really considering whether having expertise in something that's absolutely nothing to do with the European Union or having a different set of analytical skills because they're a scientist, say, than thinking about long-term political questions can be brought to bear. And I think that there's not a great deal of self-awareness amongst many academics about the limitations of their claims to authority in this.
3: Yes, I I think that's right. I think that's where there's a tricky area that lots of academics want to dress up their support for the European Union as a matter of principle or they want to present it as a matter of concern for their Irish colleagues or the many EU workers who work around the university in one capacity or another. And it's easy to find areas of tension or areas of potential hypocrisy or areas where people are helping themselves to an opinion that they can hold a bit more self-righteously than they're really entitled to. Having said that, an awful lot of people around the university are very close to Irish citizens or EU workers or on very close terms with migrants who work around the university in one capacity or another. And there it isn't simply an abstract sense of self-righteousness that they work up. It is concretely connected to the life experiences of an awful lot of people they know and are close to. And I think that's the the bit of the, the group-thinkiness I'm a lot more sympathetic to, but I completely take the points about you know the way in which, in general, academics are prone to some, some pretty self-satisfied, pretty self-regarding positions, all things considered.
1: I think that the... I mean, I entirely take um, Chris's point about the explanation of motive in why many academics are as extremely upset and angry as they are about Britain leaving the European Union. I think, though, that there is another sort of underlying issue in this, though, is that a lot of academics are quite comfortable with the language of saying that people who voted for Brexit are stupid.
0: Yeah, I mean, that in a way is the point I was trying to make. That It is one of these really difficult, complicating factors in contemporary politics. If education has become a dividing line in politics, the great danger is people on one side of that line do not think of it in old-fashioned left-right terms, but think of it in terms of knowledge and ignorance. I think that's one of yeah. the toxic features of contemporary politics in this country, in Europe, in America.
1: And I think that's why it makes it very difficult being in a university, having dissenting views, because essentially you're in a position where people are telling you, either. But in some sense they're not comfortable with saying that people in that position are stupid, but then they fall back on saying, well, maybe they're racist, but if they can't be stupid, there must be something else, of the moral failings that get fallen into. And I think that there is a, a general unwillingness to have a very intellectually serious debate about the European Union in university culture.
0: So I hope, you know, round this table at least you know, that there isn't there definitely not group thing going on here because we, we I know we all have fairly different views about this question. And in that spirit, Chris, if I pick you up on one thing that you said in your piece, which is during this sort of, oh bless you, sympathetic phase before the vote. One thing that you said, some people said to you was, yeah, it's a nice idea in theory, but probably not in practice. Um, So post the vote, do you have any sense that they might have been right? Given what we were talking about in the earlier part of this discussion, which is, yeah, you, you are very knowledgeable about European politics and you definitely understand some of the profound pitfalls of the European project. But in practice, this is looking pretty disastrous.
2: I think we're definitely at a stage now where it's not clear to me that the negotiations will be successful, however you would define that. I think the chance of a no deal is is something like 50-50 at this stage. And the reasons for that, I think, are to do with the um, domestic British politics, the fact that the Brexit vote was undeniably in some way a kind of uh, underdog-type vote. There wasn't a clear a uh, set of figures politically that were carrying it forward. So once you get to the post-referendum phase, there's just a vacuum, a political vacuum. And the people who then implement the Brexit decision in the referendum are people who themselves don't really think it's a particularly good idea. And that leads to a great reluctance, I think, to take it forward. But also that just in practical terms, yes, it is very challenging. You know, we live in an age of highly integrated supply chains. How do you move from that to something quite different? very complicated. The British state has been thoroughly embedded in the European Union. How do you extract it from there? So there are real challenges. I think it's absurd to suggest that some of the difficulties in the current negotiations are coming from the Remain stance of the deep state of places like Oxbridge or university towns and university institutions. I think that's nonsense. The reasons for the difficulties in the negotiations are much easier to
0: identify. But it's not that much about us. It it's really to, isn't.
2: Exactly. And it, it exaggerates massively the influence that academics have to suggest that somehow they're imperiling the, the negotiations. No, the negotiations are difficult because they've not been done before, and taking a, a member state out of the, of the European Union is very hard. But I do think that the difficulty of translating theory into practice, I mean, it's not been done very well, but there are better ways to do it. You know, I think on, on the position of EU nationals, for instance, At the moment, there are torturous negotiations about how to combine the access to residency status with delimiting the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice so that it doesn't infringe on what is considered to be the remit of the British courts, but does accord sufficient rights to EU nationals so that they feel safe in this country. I think there is a much easier solution to that, which is to offer all of them an automatic right to British citizenship to offer them a British passport to make them UK citizens. Now, in some instances, it's difficult because you can't have dual nationality, so that would be something to deal with. But I think for a lot of EU nationals, that would be an interesting prospect, and it would give them the kind of security, I think, that they seek. And I also think it's the right thing to do. These are people who who live here and who have made their life here and I think should be citizens of of this country. It's also almost inconceivable that a government led by Theresa May would make that offer but it's not inconceivable that a Labour government would do so. I think the importance of that idea is that on the one hand it challenges this uh, nativist impression of Brexit, that it's an exclusive, xenophobic thing. No, it's a totally inclusive thing where EU nationals in this country are offered UK citizenship. On the other hand, it does say very clearly that freedom of movement is over and questions of of immigration are returned entirely to the sovereignty of the British Parliament. And... Whether you have an open or a closed you know, border policy is up to the government in power that's been elected, and it ends the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice.
0: Another feature of the in theory, in practice problem is that, I mean, this is something that I find difficult, which is, it's not just about Europe, it's also about how a referendum factors into the kind of representative parliamentary democracy that we have. And in theory, referendums are quite a nice idea, in practice, I don't think they work. And again, it's quite a hard thing sometimes to say, for the reasons Helen said, from a sort of university perspective, because that can be painted as a kind of elitism or snobbery, you wanting to deny people the vote. But I think that from what we've seen so far, there is a real tension between the idea that this kind of expression of democratic popular will is a good idea, and just what a mess it makes of our politics.
1: I think in a way that's true. But I think that It kind of begs a a deeper question in some sense, and that is, is if you are going to have a constitutional order of the kind that the EU was created as, although its remit in terms of policy was pretty limited to begin with and is still developing to become, there has to be some means of legitimating it. And as it's been a moving constitutional order, i.e. it changes its constitutional order by treaty, and that those treaties then have to be ratified in individual member states. I think it's not surprising that national referendums have become the means that some countries, but not all countries obviously, have ended up using to deal with this question. Remember that Britain had not had a referendum on anything before it had a referendum in 1975 on whether Britain should stay in the European community, as it then was. So I think it's right that referendums caused real domestic political problems in democratic politics, and they probably particularly do in a country that essentially has a parliamentarily-based constitutional tradition like Britain does. But at the same time, I can't actually see how they're escapable in the context of there being the European Union. Now, you could say that actually then what's needed is some kind of legitimation of the European Union with a European people doing the legitimating but then you are taking the idea of the European Union and the practice of the European Union to another level. And then you're actually talking about it in some sense being a, a federal state. And then basically each part of it would still have to consent to to being it. So, yes, referendums are really difficult. But at the same time, is unless you're willing to accept, and I, I just don't see how politically this works out over the, the long term, that the... Question of the authority and power of the European Union in a constitutional sense, that legitimacy questions can just be discarded and not engaged with. I don't quite see a way around them.
0: The only thing I'd say about that is referendums are a very good device for legitimating a constitutional order. They are a terrible device for delegitimating it, I think, because it's a completely different kind of politics. And what we've had is a referendum which has delegitimated a constitutional order.
1: But then the problem is I know is, it's
0: reestablishing yeah. or, or it's reasserting a previous order. But nonetheless, I think part of the problem here is that, and it's just the old issue with referendums, which is if the people give the answer that basically is yes, we're okay, and when the answer is no, we're not.
1: Yes, but I still think you've got to deal with the problem of the way that constitutional change happens in the European Union, which is via treaty. Are you simply going to say that each time there's been a new treaty, that that simply should be accepted because a state has agreed once in the first place to become part of the European Union? And I think that when you have significant leaps in the claims of authority to the European Union. That was true with Maastricht and it was true with the Lisbon Treaty. Simply to say that, okay, the governments in power at that time can sign those treaties and then there can be no further political debate about the constitutional order that's modified. I think that is quite difficult to sustain over the long term.
0: But I think we probably are ultimately in the same position as Catalonia, which is that The only way these things will get resolved is with another election and probably another election after that. I mean, that's in the end what happens with these referendums that don't settle the thing they're meant to settle. It is electoral politics that will move it on.
2: I mean, it's possible that the elections have a sort of a more of a definitive quality to them or a settling quality to them, but I think the unsettling quality of the referendum is not a bad thing at all. The idea that the result of the referendum challenged a lot of preconceptions, it threw open a whole bag of very difficult questions, it's identified a pretty thorny issue, which is, is it possible for a country to leave the European Union? If you have a community of consent which is what everyone says the European Union is, then that must make it possible to, in a very peaceful and, you know, pacific and procedural way, leave. Now, if the British experience, and we're not talking about an insignificant member state here, we're talking about one of the most powerful member states of the European Union, if it can't leave, if its politics dissolves in an attempt to extract itself from the European Union then it poses the question of what is the nature of the consent that holds the European Union together? Is it a community of what? Coercion? Something else? Now, I think the referendum, at the very least, if it didn't do anything more, at least it posed questions like that, which I think we should be uh, trying to find answers to.
0: So since you did put your head above the parapet, you get the last word, but it's not the last word, because we're going to come back to you on that. If you'd like to read Chris's article, which has come down from behind its paywall, if you'd like to see Chris in a debate with Barnier's representative, do go to Twitter at tppodcast underscore and we will tweet those links. Do rate us on iTunes if you enjoy this podcast and do please join us again next week. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. I never even got back to you about the SUV thing because actually I thought it was a weird analogy because that's implying that you're a hypocrite, which you're not.
2: Uh, no, I think it's, well, it may imply that, uh, but it also implied. Uh, yes, I mean, it might not be the right. Uh. <laughs> that's for the outtake. <laughs>